Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 36 of the Mandolin's of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It is also brought to you in part by one of my favorite places to play, Prohibition. It's in downtown Charleston, South Carolina here, right on King Street, uh, and I've been playing there for a few years now for brunch every Saturday and Sunday, and it is just they have some of the best food, the best drinks, and the best people that you're going to run into in Charleston. So when all this stuff clears up, and if you find yourself in Charleston, South Carolina, or in Savannah, Georgia, they've got locations at both, and I highly recommend going there and checking it out. It's incredible. The vibe's great, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's great. So, And I want to thank them for supporting the podcast during this time when they're not even open. It really, really means a lot. So hope everybody out there is doing all right. Um, this episode is with Don Julin, and Don sent me an email after the podcast, and instead of a promo code, he sent me a link to his website, mandolinshealtheworld.com, and he is doing a 30-day free trial period on all new memberships. Um, it's normally seven days, um, and it's, uh, it's not permanent, but it's a great way for folks with cabin fever to check this out. So if you go to mandolinsandbeer.com, you can find the link that Don sent me. You just click on that and get 30 days free. And we talk about all the instructors that are on there. And it is a really, really great website. So be sure to check that out. And another thing Don sent me, I'm not sure if you remember or not, but last week's guest was Tim Connell. And Don and Tim just recorded a new album that's going to be coming out. And Don sent me uh, an advanced track of Mr. Natural. And it's unmixed, but it is incredible. And it is at the very end of this podcast. So check it out. It is amazing. Great playing by the both of them. And also be sure to check out the Spotify playlist. Um, not only are we going to have songs that are played on this episode, but Don sent me some of the tracks that are also on Spotify that might not show up under his recordings. So that Spotify playlist will be up also at mandolinsofbeer.com. So be sure to check that out. There's a few hundred songs on there now. So uh, be sure to uh, click follow when you go to Spotify. Um, thanks everybody for the support. Obviously I have the Patreon page. Uh, if you want to go there, I've got lessons and videos and tabs that I've put up there. I want to thank everybody who bought the tie dye t-shirts. There are a few large tie dye t-shirts left mediums and extra large sold out almost immediately. So thank you so much. It really means a lot. And my daughter, who's home from school because she's not doing uh, their, their campus is closed, so she's doing the distance learning, made these tie-dyed shirts. And I really appreciate you um, uh, purchasing them. I appreciate the support, as you know. Been listening to any of these podcasts, no gigs. So, uh, And if you want to support the podcast and don't want to sign up for a Patreon, I also have a Venmo and um, and a PayPal if you want to just send a donation in. Cool. If not, no biggie as well. The best thing you can do for free is uh, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to and leave a review. Um, you know, if you have a few extra seconds, you could go leave a review at the iTunes uh, store. That would be amazing. So, so let's get into this podcast with Don. Next week is uh, Baron Collins Hill. You may know him from mandolessons.com. And um, this episode starts a little bit different. Don and I, I usually do these podcasts and start talking ahead of time with the guests just to get a, a rapport going and Don had such great stuff going right away I kind of kicked it off here before I introduced him so we get to the introduction a few minutes into the podcast anyway hope y'all are safe cheers everybody thank you for listening take care
I've been following your career for years, man, and um, it definitely seems like you were one of the first people to embrace, like, YouTube videos that, you mm -hmm. know, the kind of tagged, like, hey, if you want to learn more about these scales I'm showing you or, or, or things like that, you can you know, go to my website or do online lessons. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think, um, you know, living in a remote part of the country, um, and you know, you, you, you find, you know, when new opportunities arise, I was, I, I kind of jumped on it and it seemed like the internet was something that was like, holy cow, this is a, it doesn't really matter where you live. So for an old mandolin player it was worth, you know, spending a little time figuring out how does this work? Um, and will it work? And so, yeah, it was 10 years ago or so I started throwing out uh, videos on YouTube to try to to try to attract Skype students. And it worked pretty well. And and that led to um, like video recording lessons. I went, well, gee, you know, Skype is pretty good, but it's kind of choppy. And um, it's almost like the students could learn more off the YouTube videos than they could live in person. So I started thinking, hold on, I'm going to make a vault of stuff I know all my students need, a dozen fiddle tunes. I'm going to make videos and practice tracks and just store them on a private page on what was donjulin.com at that point. And I thought, well, I'm going to, when I get done with a student, I'm going to try this. So my next student, we went over the lesson and I critiqued them and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, I said, so what I want you to do for next week is I want you to learn this fiddle tune that I know that you don't know. I'm going, I'm not going to show you how to play it. I'm going to send you a link to a, to a, a page that has videos and tablature and practice tracks. I'll see you next week. And they all. And all the students started showing up knowing the stuff. I found that it way back then that the power of this educational thing is not only the live interaction and the fact that what city you live in doesn't matter anymore, but seeing something over and over and over again is really the best way to learn it. So uh, that was, uh, I had those, I had those lessons on a private site for my students. Um, well, before I, before I met Billy Strings anyways. So that would have been, uh, yeah, 2011. I probably put those up 2010, somewhere around there. So, so yeah. So, so I've been dabbling with this online learning idea since, since I realized that it was available. Um, you know, I also, I think in the early days of that, even a couple years before that, um, when Berkeley School of Music started offering online courses, um, I was really interested in um, arranging and film scoring. I was writing music that for, for TV and that kind of thing and thought, man, if I got, you know, some formal training in this stuff, this would be great. And they offered these online courses. And I thought, well. Let's give it a try. You know, I don't. Can you really learn online? How would that work? There's no classroom, huh? So I I put my money down and uh and took a series of courses and ended up with a arranging certificate 
through the through through Berkeley, which doesn't really mean anything. All it means is you've con- you know you've completed a series of four courses or whatever, and each one was a twelve week, pretty in depth course. And I learned so much that it, it was really a head turner. It was like, wow, this is this is the future of education. There's no question about it. Oh, I mean, wow. so so that's kind of you know. That's kind of uh, the under the hood look at. It. That's awesome. So I, I should mention I should mention I'm I am now talking to my guest Don Julin. Um, uh, welcome, Don. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Great, man. So we started talking about. Um, I always start these podcasts by trying to just kind of get a conversation going, and uh, everything was so interesting. I decided to just kind of kick it on, and um, we were talking a little bit about this online learning, which Don has been ahead of the curve of for years and we kind of started talking about that and it's crazy to think now like you just mentioned Berkeley you know you're like wow what's it going to be like to do online classes and now almost every student in the United States <laughs> due to this virus is 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 taking online classes for the until the semesters are over right I I, I yeah definitely the online teaching uh population has increased a whole lot in the last month that's for sure <laughs> yeah and and i do remember your videos i mean from at least i want to say 2009 2010 at, at least on youtube and it was always amazing to me that you were like one of these guys out there like cracking the code on youtube of like here's major pentatonic scales or here's different mm-hmm. scales and really breaking it down and giving this information out and then if you wanted to learn more you, you had access to go to you to do it which is so cool well, th- well, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah it absolutely. was it was it was exciting, fun doing that. You know, back in those days, the Mandolin Cafe was uh, was the hub before Facebook. Yeah, discussion groups kind of took over, and you could really, you know, go to the Mandolin Cafe and go in those discussion forums and find like-minded folks, you know, or people that really need to be, you know, you have their answer. Somebody's taught, you know, somebody would be talking about. Hey, I'm playing this chord progression, and it's got these four chords in it, and I'm thinking that it's this scale, and and then you get a bunch of uh, other opinions from fellow mandolin players, and as you read, as I read through the opinions, I'm going, hmm, <laughs> I have the right answer. I have, I know exactly what the student is asking. I, I know the answer. So what I would do is shoot a little video on my little whatever zoom video recorder we had back then (laughs) 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 i would i would shoot a little video i would put it on youtube and i would link it in the discussion forum on mandolin cafe i go hey i've been listening to your discussion this is this what you're talking about here's the four chords here's how i would do it and then i would play through it and 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 you know, describe what I'm doing. And of course, and with a little tag. And if you're interested in lessons, you know, you can get a hold of me. Um, and that's kind of how, you know, that's kind of how it started. That is wild. And, and and how much has progressed in in the last 10 years or so is, uh, is oh, yeah. mind blowing, yeah. which leads us to, we should, we should start off with the mandolins heal the world website that you have. Um, I was going through it yesterday and you just have, along with yourself, a stable of great musicians and lessons on there. It's it's really becoming 
um, quite a database of stuff. Yeah, I've been working on that. We've been open about three years now, I guess. And I'm constantly putting up more stuff and trying to streamline it so that it's easier to follow. I think in the first year, I thought it would be, um, I thought it, I thought it was pretty easy to navigate, but the guy who builds the house always knows where the closets and the bathrooms are. <laughs> and as it turns out, I needed to make it a little easier to find things and, and streamline it. And so I'm, I'm learning my way around that a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy with the site. You know, we've got tons of members and people seem to learn from it. And uh, uh, it certainly helps. Like when I meet with somebody um, in person or at a camp or through Skype or whatever, who's a student on the site, it's always great because, you know, oh, I'm working on this tune. I, I learned this one. And sometimes they play stuff and it's like, wow. You totally nailed that. You, like, <laughs> you know, I've never met you before, and you totally played one of my songs for me perfectly. That's so cool. That's awesome. And you have yeah. who are some of the teachers that you have on there? You've got Tim Connell, who was a guest. I've got Tim Connell. I've got Jordan Ramsey doing some stuff on cross picking. Um, I've got uh, Chris Henry doing traditional Monroe type stuff. Uh, David Benedict, who does just about everything. You know, yeah. <laughs> young phenom um let's see a buddy of mine alan epstein from upstate new york he's got some beginner stuff on there that might hope hopefully i'm not forgetting anyone i think that's I'm, I'm pulling it up here as we're talking i think you got everybody on there yeah there's there's there has been talk of adding other people and i'm still open to that so it's a it's a it's an evolving thing um and you've got a ton of your stuff on there which is super yeah yeah the majority of yeah the majority of it's me um and it's you know it's my it's my format to uh to teach what i want to teach the way i want to teach it because i own the store i don't really have to follow anybody else's <laughs> right. protocol yeah my my cute little dog is in some of my teaching videos. He'll walk into the frame, and I just leave it go. And you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what I love about stuff like that, though. The uh, just the, the the personality comes through, and that's what that's why people want to learn from certain players is you know the personality and just everything, not just the mandolin playing. Right. Well, that yeah, and it makes it fun. You know, video makes makes that fun. So it's a cool time that we're living in. I mean, you know, not only our mandolins probably uh more popular and uh there's more builders and more choices than ever um technology makes it so that we can all connect wherever we live you know so we can you know you can live in ohio and find out what kind of mandolin music is being played in italy um you know where you know when i started you just couldn't do that <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's... it was i went to the record store and i bought three records and this is what i think mandolin sounds like um <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a crapshoot you sometimes you get something with a mandolin on the cover and you're like this is not what i was looking for <laughs> right right so so it's a great time to to play any instrument but but i think especially in the string world to play mandolin and there's so many awesome players oh. in, the, in the mandolin world right now uh, you know so many just mind-blowing musicians that are playing our little eight string instrument and the access to them now 
the access to them, the access to the ability to ask questions. Yeah, that's what know? I'm saying. It's a, it's a great, it's just a great time to be doing this. Um, and you use um, some of the people use sound slice for the lessons, which I love that sound slice format. Yeah, we've used that from the beginning. And you know what? I find that on some things, it's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. But on some things, it's, you don't need it. So I've, I've got it on some lessons and not on others. Sure. You know, for instance, if I'm, you know, if I'm showing you how to play um, a fiddle tune, my teaching style is I'm going to break it down into four bar phrases or maybe even two bar phrases. And we're going to loop those phrases over and over again. And then you're going to, you know, 10 minutes later, you're going to be putting the phrases together to try to play the A part of the song. Sound slice doesn't help with that kind of presentation. But in the case of like David Benedict's Mandolin Mondays, where they're all performances that he's got meticulously notated out. Right. Having that available, if you want to go, well, gee, what did he really do there? Then Sound Slice is really awesome, the way it syncs the video and the sheet music together, and you can slow it down and highlight one measure and go, oh, look at there. Oh, that's a little pull-off right there. I, I see what's going on. You know, so so for, 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 for picking up performances and licks, it's really cool. But if, you know... If it's a, you know, if I'm showing you the G scale, we don't really need sound slice for that. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, but I do offer that. It is embedded on the site, um, you know, and, and it doesn't. You don't need any additional software or any app to access it. It runs right on the site. Yeah, man. Everything's real intuitive on there. I loved it, man. Cool. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, how did you start? How did you start playing mandolin? What brought you to it? Uh, let's see. Okay, well, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer. I didn't play music as a kid. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I did not play in the high school band or the choir or any of that. I always loved music. My parents and my mother tried to get me to play music when I was younger. I remember having an accordion as a child and not really liking it. So I thought, I really love music, but my one experience with trying to learn to play music wasn't very good so i'm i'm not the musician i'm the i'm the audience i'm the music listener so i think through high school i probably had you know a bigger record collection of anybody that i knew and it was eclectic even in high school you know i'd be listening to you know frank zappa and you know real experimental kind of you know different stuff than what my friends would listen to um and i i guess i was 19 or 20 and kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life and working on a construction crew, um, not really, didn't really have a direction. I was just trying to figure it out. And uh, this guy showed up, a new worker, a new laborer showed up um, with, a, and he had a Martin guitar in the back of his truck. And like at lunchtime, he got his guitar out and started picking some tunes. And and I had been listening to, at that point, been dabbling in, you know, maybe put one toe in the in the in the bluegrass world. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe was listening to Nitty Gritty Dirt Band.
you know, one of those kind of bands that in the 70s were kind of kind of folk rock, but hey, man, but that's that's bluegrass too. Look. Yeah, like a so, gateway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I had, you know, I was at least open to that kind of music. And he was a fine flat picker and singer. And, and we got to be friends. And, you know, I don't know, a month or so after that, he, he brought a mandolin and said, hey, man, after work, what are you doing? I said, well, I don't know, you know, nothing. He goes, well, you know, let's go hang out at this park and or go over to this guy's house. I'll, I'll pick up a six pack of beer. And, you know, so we went over there and he handed me a mandolin and he, you know, he says, well, here's three chords. And I guess it was four chords now that I know more about it. Cause we played, uh, <laughs> we played your cheating heart. If oh, I remember cool. correctly. Your cheating heart will make you weep. You cry and cry. And try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. Your cheating heart will tell you. And um, you. I was pretty uh, I was pretty smitten by the whole thing. I went, wow, this is like the coolest thing I've ever done. I actually played a song on this instrument. And uh, so the next day I saw him and he, he said, man, if that if that was fun, here, check this music out. And he gave me a cassette tape, a, a, a cassette copy, not a, <laughs> it was like somebody taped it off their, their turntable, but it was a cassette of the first David Grisman quintet CD. mandolin the next day and i've been chasing this dream ever since <laughs> so yeah so i it was it was really just that somebody handed me a mandolin one day and then the next day a cassette tape and uh was like wow i guess i know i guess i know what i'm here to do i'm supposed to do this that's so cool so did you find like a teacher after that and like a local teacher did you teach yourself how did you uh... no the, yeah well for the first first bunch of years it was kind of teaching yourself so i realized I wasn't going to get specific mandolin instruction locally. Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, subscribe to like the mandolin, what was it called? The little rag that Grisman was putting out oh, at that point. Yeah. The mandolin World News. Yes. I would get those and I would have some lessons in those and you could get Fretz magazine and it would occasionally have a mandolin transcription or something in there. And I was trying to learn through mandolin players, but what I what I did have access to here in, in in Traverse City, Michigan, was a community college with a pretty darn good music program. So I enrolled in college um, as a, I guess I was 19 or 20, about the same time, knowing that I was not going to get a degree um, and just took every music class that they had. So music theory, sight singing and ear training, playing in the jazz lab band, playing guitar chord charts on the mandolin, you know, just 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 kind of learned everything I could about music um, and then applied that to the mandolin. 
And it wasn't until a few years after that that I actually did get to hang out with some of my mandolin heroes and see exactly how they're doing things and pick up actual pointers. And um, so I kind of came in the you know a, a different path, I think, than than some folks. Where it seems like a lot of mandolin players that man they start playing they're five years old. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> I know. I, I, and I knew that as soon as I got into it, because I would start going to bluegrass festivals and you'd see all these kids that were so good. And, and I just thought, man, if, the, if I'm, if I'm going to do this, if this is what I'm going to try to make a career as a, as a musician, I got to get, I really, uh, I got some catching up to do. <laughs> right. I know the so, feeling. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I thought, you know, I can go to college right now. It was at that point in my life where I could spend a couple of years at a community college. And I learned so much. I remember my, uh, my music teacher, Walter Ross. I think about that guy every day. He, he taught me a whole lot. He was a good guy. He was, uh, you know, he was a pretty straight professor, but there was a real creative streak in him. And I would uh, bring in odd projects and, uh, and he would always have he would always have little bits of wisdom to add to, you know, to whatever it is the project was I was bringing in, whatever it was a term project or a composition or something. He would always have these really interesting kind of ways to look at it. You know, uh, for instance, one one assignment, it was, I don't know, after uh, almost two years of music theory, this assignment, the term project was to was to compose this piece and to be able to perform it, either uh, perform it live by yourself or use other musicians in the class to perform it. And I was dabbling in recording at that point. I had a couple of reel-to-reel recorders and I said, could I bring this thing in on a, on a recording? He said, sure, that'd be great. So I did this kind of sound on sound thing with my electric guitar and weird effects pedals and <laughs> seagull sounds and this kind of new agey kind of chord progression. And, and it was all pretty cool. And I brought it in and played it for him in the class and, and he really liked it. And he said, I play that again. So we, we rewound the tape and played it again. He goes, man, that's, that's great. He goes, but, but that's only half of the assignment. And I went, well, what do you mean? What's the other half? And he goes, well, you have to write it out. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> well, how do I do that? I mean, the half of it I could write out. There's notes, but how do you, how do you write out? You know, I did a harmonic at the twelfth fret on these two strings, and with the whammy bar, I dropped the pitch down to here, and then, you know, I took a a fork or something and scraped it up and down a string. And <laughs> how, how do you write that? And then, and so he, in his wisdom, went over to his um, library of books and pulled out a book on modern transcriptions and it had transcriptions of John Cage and Laurie Anderson and I was a Laurie Anderson fan at that point I don't know if you know her music I know the name but I'm not familiar with her music yeah real experimental New York art stuff um they had a transcription for a Laurie Anderson a famous Laurie Anderson piece called a duet for electric violin and door jam <laughs> and the deal is you play you stand with your amplified mandolin with your pickup on your mandolin and you stand in a doorway and you try to play this piece and the bow hits the door jam because you're standing in a doorway <laughs> oh my gosh 
but the book showed the, the book showed how you would notate stuff like that or basically you might have to come up with your own notation so then I did. I went home and I notated the whole thing out and made a little glossary of this symbol means this and this symbol means that. And but 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 he was a he you know he was a great teacher. So some of those you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, talking to like getting to meet some of your heroes and picking up pointers from them. What are a couple? Do you have one or two maybe that you can remember, like meeting some of those heroes and some pointers they gave you? I don't remember who it was. Um, but I know I was at Winfield and I was hanging out with Scott Titchener. Oh yeah. From the, from the Mandolin Cafe. And, um, because videos weren't popular yet, they were just coming on the scene, the VHS videos, um, being able to see everyone's right hand was an eye opener for me. In probably 1999, I can I can confess that before <laughs> 1999, in the early days, it's really like the super early days of like the Mandolin Cafe when people would talk about right hand technique and this needs to be an upstroke and needs to be a downstroke. I I was just kind of scratched my head and went, does it make that much difference if you play it right? <laughs> well, go to Winfield, you, you'll get your answer. <laughs> so I. Uh, I got my answer uh, really bold uh, after going there for a couple of years. It was like, man, all of these players that are just ripping, look at the right hand. They all are playing super relaxed and they all got this up and down repetitive. I mean, they could play down up strokes for hours on end without, without cracking a sweat. So I went home and, and um, changed the way that I play. No kidding. Changed the way, yeah. In, in '99, I changed the way that I play. Changed the way I hold the pick. Um, changed the way that I brace on the top of the instrument. Um, and I think that's when I started to relax. If I listened to myself play prior to that on recordings, I can hear it. I can hear attention. I can hear my right hand was not together, although the notes were there. Mm -hmm the groove wasn't there. And I think once, once I changed to do that, and I don't remember who it was. I mean, it could have been anybody. I mean, you know, at Winfield, it could have been Chris Thiele. It could have been Scott Titchener himself. Who knows? You know, <laughs> Scott, that's a great player, but you get in these circles and you play with all these super great players and the contest is there. And in those days I thought, Oh, gee, I, I kind of want to know where, where, where do I stand in this world? So I would enter the contest and find out immediately where I stood. Um, <laughs> some years I would do pretty good, you know, but, but there was always somebody there that had just amazing technique. And what I saw was, it was almost always the right hand that really made the difference to me between the pretty good players and the mind-blowingly great players. So I went and studied my right hand stuff and really, you know, paid attention to up and down strokes and really, you know, I, I remember buying a mirror. This is before we had video cameras or phones or any of that. And I bought a mirror and set it on the table and practiced with a mirror. And I was watching my right hand for about a year, year and a half before it really became completely normal and is the, is the way that I play now. But it took a long time to really relax and watch and go, oh, boy, look at there. It's like when you play that passage, your, 
her forearm is tightening up. What's what's going on here? And then I would play it until I until my ha whole hand looked completely relaxed. And then once I could do that, it was like, man, that not only looks better, it sounds great. This is really what I want to sound like. So, you know, so it was the, you know, the biggest lesson I got from hanging around good mandolin players was was that was right hand matters. <laughs> it, it, it really matters. Yeah, nowadays with the phone, it's pretty easy. Like if I'm doing a, a camp or a workshop and we're teaching right hand stuff and, you know, and most people get it, but somebody doesn't get it. You know, they give you that kind of deer in the headlights look like, yeah, I think I'm doing what you're asking. And you watch their hand and you go, no, oh, you don't get it. So sometime what I'll do, I'll, I'll ask that person to play. And if, it, if I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I'll ask them to play and I'll get my phone out and just zoom in on their hand for 20 seconds and then just play it just for them. You go, now look at your hand. And then they watch the video and they go, well, look at that. I'm, my hand's not bouncing up and down like everybody else in the room is going up and down together. And my hand's all over the place. <laughs> and that, that, I mean, it's the first, the first thing you, you know, first thing you have to do is admit that you uh, have room to improve, right? Exactly. And you've been doing a lot of, how long have you been doing camps and teaching camps and, and things like that? You're, you're, your name's on a lot of those camps. The first camp I went to, well, I was not a teacher at. I went, uh, in the early days, I, I dropped in on one of the symposiums, just kind of uh, as a on a whim, um, and realized that I really needed to be part of that community um, and to be doing that. Like the, I guess the first year that I went to the symposium, I was actively teaching and I had YouTube's out and that kind of stuff, and I I probably wrote the whole thing off as a business thing because I was studying uh, everybody's teaching styles. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So I went, I wanted to see how does dog teach this? How does Mike teach this? And everybody else they had there, Andy Statman and every, you know, all of my heroes. I just wanted to be there and see, you know, learn whatever I could from them, of course. Um, but also see how they teach. Um, and it was really great. I mean, I, the first, first time I went out there within 10 minutes, um, you know, somebody had me talking to dog and Mike and they, they were really warm and said, Ben, you need to come up on stage end of the week and play with us. And, you know, wow, it was really cool. So then, you know, I guess I was there five or six years and each year they would give me a little more to do. So the first year I was just a student, second year, second, second and third year, I might have helped by running the swing jam session or something to that effect where you know, I was not really on staff, but I was part of the team. And then a couple of years after that, they gave me a few more, you know, actual classes. Um, and then the Dummies book came out. Yeah. Let's talk about the Dummies book, man. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah that was a big deal. And that was, <laughs> yeah. that came out and um, David really got behind it and said, hey, man, um, we'd like to bring you on staff to teach a beginner track. We've never really had a beginner track here. And, you know, with the dummies book, you know, you're about as credentialed as any of us teaching beginners at this point, would you like to design a beginner track and teach a whole week's worth of lessons out here? <laughs> and to that, to that, to that, it took me about less than one second to go. Yes. The dude whose album you bought 
<laughs> when you picked up a mandolin is now asking you to teach at a camp he runs. <laughs> that's yes. amazing. That, that's exactly how amazing it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was completely blown away and, 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 you know, obviously was thrilled to be on the team and put together a curriculum of beginner lessons and uh, went out there and had a, had a blast. How did you come up with the uh, idea to, did you contact the, um, the publisher? Cause those dummies books, I used to work in the, Barnes and Noble for 17 years as a general manager and those dummies books they're I mean they've got to be one of the most published series of books ever because they have them for everything and that's that's a huge huge thing how does that come about um well we can kind of go back to the YouTube videos mm -hmm. it has something to do with that um and and it had something to do with our friend Scott at the Mandolin Cafe so in full full disclosure, this is what I know about how it came together. <laughs> there, there, might, there might be more. But I get an email from Scott one day saying, hey, the, the dummies folks from the dummies books are sniffing around for a mandolin author. Can I give them your name? You know, are you, would you be interested? And I, I, and I said, well, I'd love to be on a team that does something like that, but I'm not really a writer. I don't really, I don't think I got the chops to do that. And he said, well, you know, if you don't mind, I'll pass your name on. So I said, sure. A few months later, I get an email from somebody I don't recognize from Wiley saying, hey, we're, we're looking for a, an author to do the Mandolin for Dummies book. Can we set up a phone conversation and see if you're interested? I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course I'm interested. So we set up this phone conversation, and I'm talking to this guy from from England, this British guy. And oh, yeah, actually, no, the first guy was an American who was in England working because all of that publishing was happening. It's a British company. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, I did only because yeah. from my previous life. But <laughs> okay, so so yeah, I'm talking to this guy, and he goes, "Yeah, so my job is uh, to find an author." for this book and you know and and you seem like you got the qualifications so i said well what you know what do you know about me and he goes well you know I, you know i've seen your youtube instructional videos you clearly know how to play the instrument and can teach and you can uh shoot videos i see that uh i um he goes and i'm a huge deadhead and i see a video of you playing with david grisman <laughs> so, you, so you know uh celebrities in this industry if you need to do an interview and uh so he, we talked for about a half hour and, you know, it seemed like I had the skill set that they were looking for. So, so I spent a year writing the book and, uh, and it's been, it's been awesome. The experience, you know, they've been in touch with me actually last week. I was talking with an editor. Um, it's time to refresh that book. So oh, cool. on the fall of 2020, they would like the, uh, a second edition of that book to be out. So I'm going to, I'll be working on that while I'm stuck here at home this spring and summer. Well, it, it must be rewarding knowing, I mean, uh, coming again from a, from a book background, um, a, a, if books aren't successful, they don't ask for a part two, which was mandolin exercises for dummies came out and they definitely don't ask for a second edition of a, of a selling book if they don't need to put the money into something like that, if it wasn't successful. So that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think the first one, I think the Mandolin for Dummies is around 
40,000 copies right now. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. That's so great. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Yeah, man. Yeah, that was part of what what inspired the Mandolin Seal the World. So it's like, you know, I think we first met. You, we, I did a little interview with you when I was on the road with Billy. Is that right? Yeah. And um, so the book was out and the book was selling like crazy. In fact, I wrote the Mandolin Exercises one in the back of the van. We were on tour when I wrote that. Oh, no kidding. Really? I would write that in hotel rooms and in the green room. And I'll, I don't know, man. I on three on three string chord inversions, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the the book is out. That's that's gaining popularity, and I'm looking at these numbers, and then I'm thinking, hold on, a year or two ago, I started developing this website with lessons, and it was really successful. And now I've got the eyes of the mandolin community on me because of this book. I need to open an online teaching school. So I had started it when me and Billy first started, like when we were a regional act, I had started building Mandolin Seal the World. Um, I was on a different format than what I finally ended up with, but but I had started it and I had to drop it because uh, that's, his career just took off. That's an and understatement. Like, <laughs> yeah, and it was like, you know, I think I, I think I'm going to strap myself in and go for a, go for a rocket ship ride here for a few years and uh, see where this takes me. Yeah, and it was really fun, um, and I always knew that as soon as we outgrew each other, then I was going to go back. I had this, this online mandolin school thing that I had in mind that I wanted to do. And with all these copies of the dummies book selling and all these people who had just seen me perform with Billy strings, it's like, man, do this now, you know, do this right, right. Do this right now. So that's, that's when I decided I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to kind of not tour much for the next couple of years. I'm going to build this website and, uh, and see where it goes. And, and I'm pretty happy. Yeah, you should be. It's great. It's great. You can tell there's heart into it. You know, it's a cool website and I see a lot of them, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And you'll, and you'll see a bunch more. It's like everybody in the world is a, is an online teacher as of two weeks ago or three weeks ago. <laughs> right. Right. And, and you know, there will be some big winners in this. We're going to find out about somebody, either a, a, a teaching phenom or a performing phenom that nobody knew about that we're going to find out about through you know live stream concerts or something mm -hmm. um you know so the the good the good part about this is some somebody's career is going to take off right, because right. It, there's a new like a new portal or a new you know it's like the early days of the internet all over again it's like wow it's like why it's like wide open I'd be remiss to ask you, I'm sure there's going to be some Billy Strings people listening to this uh, podcast as well, um, to ask you a little bit about that whole experience. Because, I mean, you you started Ground ground Zero with with Billy, and um, you guys played a lot of shows together. <laughs> a lot yeah. of shows together. Yeah, well, we're both really hard workers. Um, and, and, and it just, you know... He moved to Traverse City, Michigan when he was 19. He was already a very established, good musician. 
he was a kid, but he was he was already a really good musician. So, um, you know, word spread around town. Holy cow, this this kid's this great great guitar player. And, and um, so I went and saw him play once and introduced myself. I was finishing up the dummies book. I think I had my laptop. I was typing away and watched him play and just said, hey, man, we should get together and play sometime. You know, I'm finishing up this book. And and he said, yeah, whatever. And so I, I guess like a week or two went by and I had booked um, like a restaurant gig on a Friday night. But because I was cramming to finish the dummies book, I forgot to book a band. <laughs> I had the date, but as soon as I emailed all my normal sidemen, they all went, oh, dude, <laughs> it's Friday night. We're all booked somewhere else. <laughs> so I called Billy. I went, hey, dude, I got this gig Friday night at this restaurant. Um, you want to play a gig? Oh, well, yeah, what would we do? I said, I don't know. Where do you live? He gives me his address. I said, I'm going to put my mandolin on my back. I'm going to ride my bike over to your house, and let's just play. Let's just play for a half hour or something and see see if there's anything there. And if so, we'll just go play this gig and whatever. So I rode over to his place, and that was the day that we had just heard that Doc Watson died. Oh, wow. So I rode over to his house, knocked on his door, and went, man, did you hear Doc Watson died? He went into his bedroom and grabbed a stack of 12-inch LPs that was about a foot tall and brought them out. They were all Doc Watson records. Well, I heard my mama say to my papa, let's call him John Henry Brown. Walk on board. Walk on down the road. Well, there ain't nobody in the whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load. Well, I left my mom and papa just about the age of ten. And I got me a job working on the levee toting water for the hard-working men. So we sat down and played, and it was, to me, it seemed like there was a connection right off the bat. So we started playing some local gigs, caught on like wildfire, and uh, he was working a, a job at a hotel. And I just said, man, you know, I haven't toured or played a lot in a few years because i've been kind of staying home raising kids developing this website thing playing some jazz gigs but but if you want to really push this thing i can find us enough work where you don't have to go like go work at a hotel dude um i mean <laughs> you, <laughs> right. know, yeah. you know i think the, your talents you, might be wasted here do you like do you like making beds dude um <laughs> he went no i hate that Oops. <laughs> oh, you're fine. <laughs> Get me out of there. So I don't know. It was maybe a month later. He quit his job, and we were making enough money playing regional gigs around Michigan to make a modest living. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, it just kind of blew up. And then um, I said, "Well, if we want to really do this, then we need to go to Folk Alliance International, and we need to go to IBMA because this is a really viable national thing." Um, so we started doing that kind of stuff. I brought him out to the symposium one year as my accompanist. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember asking Dog and those guys, hey, I'm, I got some gigs out on the West Coast with this young kid that I'm playing with. And can I bring him to the symposium? He'll sleep on the floor. He doesn't eat much. <laughs> You know, can I, you know, can I make it legal that he doesn't have to pay to be here or anything? Because he, he'll be my accompanist and I'll play during my part of the program. He'll he'll play with me. 
<laughs> That's great, man. So yeah, we went out there and obviously just blew the roof off the place, and you know, and um, so that's when he first met David and a lot of a lot of the superstars in the in the world was was that week. Um, but we just kind of toured everywhere we could um, out of the little blue Kia van um, for about one hundred and fifty thousand miles or so. <laughs> and I, I'll bet you we did. I'll bet you we did. I bet you we did six or 700 shows together. Wow. How many years did you guys play together? About three. So it was like two years of solid on the road of a couple hundred days a year and a, and a year building up to that. Wow. And both those albums are great, man. So fun to listen to, man. So fun. Thanks. No, that was a fun time. And it's fun watching his career because, man, he's, he's just like, it's, it's the real deal. No, he's, yeah, he's he he's really something. It was fun. I had a great time playing with him. I have I have good memories from that, and I wish him the best. So, and you have tons of you have tons of recordings out of yourself <laughs> as well. We should you know, your uh, those recordings are great. But so is I think. Oh boy, what was maybe vibe is I remember I remember emailing you. Um, before I even did the mandolins and beer thing, because I remember uh, buying a copy of Vibe. And the the tone of your mandolin on that album is so good. And I was stunned to find, I believe you told me it was like a clip-on mic at that time that you had used. You know what? You have a good memory, Dan. Hey, thanks, man. Yes. Um, that session, was, I used my Gibson Snakehead Mando, which I'm assuming somewhere in this interview we're going to talk about gear and tech stuff. Absolutely. Um, and that week, we cut that all live. Um, so there was bleed-through issues. You know, with a with a guitar, bass, and drums, there was a little separation from the drum set, but there was still bleed through stuff. So I couldn't get the the sound on the mando that I wanted um, using a regular microphone. So I thought, man, I've, I've been using this clip on mic on live gigs. What does this thing sound like on a recording? And it's a good one. It's a DPA forty ninety nine. It's you know six or seven hundred dollar mic, and that's what you hear. It sounds so good. I know. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I mean, I remember listening to that album for the first time. And I'm like, wow, that's that's a great sounding recording of mandolin. Because you know, not there's lots of great recordings. There's not tons of great recordings that make you stop in your tracks though and go like, whoa, what did that person use? You know, like, oh, well, thank great. you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's one of my other passions is is sound gathering, recording. You know, I I think I went. When my kids were first born, I think I went like seven years without playing any gigs. And what I did is I just did recordings and production. So I, you know, set up a little demo studio and learned how to, you know, do demos for everybody and radio commercials and learn how to edit stuff. And 
you know, did classical recordings with school choirs and that type of thing. So I stopped playing for a while, um, but really kept my hand in the music thing because it was, I was really learning how to, how to produce records and how to gather sound. Yeah, and a lot of people might not re- realize they hear you every now and again on some commercials. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Right? Is that the track? Well, yeah, yeah, that was years ago. That guy used, yeah. Well, actually, there's a lot of stuff people don't don't realize, um, like cable TV shows and stuff. Use a lot of my stuff. Yeah, it's funny reading, reading the, um, the BMI statements. <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing what it's been played on. <laughs> yes, it's pretty. It's pretty funny. Some dumb show called Campus Eats catfish tv show on mtv oh all right here we go so on viceland they use my stuff for bong appetit <laughs> a show called uh, expletive that's delicious um states of undress i don't even want to know what that is yeah. Um, yeah so it's pretty funny you read through this list and go wow really that's you know I think the, the biggest paying thing from this last quarter was a piece that I called um, a slow night, and what it was was I had this gig playing this uh, pub, and I was playing with a looper, and there was nobody there, <laughs> and I plugged a mini disc into the back of the amp, and just did this most slow depressing loop that you've ever heard. And I listened to it back and went, oh, man, that could work in a film somewhere. I'll call that a slow night. It's just so disturbing. And, yeah, that was the big, that was like 15, 20 years ago I recorded that thing on a gig. And that was the biggest payout from my last uh, BMI statement. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. Well, let's talk a little bit about your gear. We 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 kind of referenced it a few minutes ago. Let's let's do the let's do the ner- the nerdy gear talk. Okay, so I play. If you watch videos of me on YouTube, when I'm not playing, like you know, now that I'm not doing the bluegrass thing as often, about half of the stuff I play is electric, and about half of it is acoustic. So tell me what you want to know about, and I'll tell you everything I know. Yeah, let's go with just let's go with let's take your um. Your top two main axes, acoustic and electric. Let's go that way. <laughs> Boy, that's tough. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. Um, well, my best, my best acoustic mandolin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a little more than what you asked. Yeah, for. that's great. I'll but take the, it. Um, I've got three really good acoustic mandolins that I like right now. And I've had them all for quite a few years, which means they probably really do like them. Um, and one is the Gibson Snakehead that you mentioned from the Vibe recording. Um, one is a Northfield F5, one of the very early ones from like maybe their first year in production or so. 
Um, and then a 1991 Nugget two-point. And I, those three kind of cover what I need to do acoustically. Um, all of them do have or had have pickups installed in them. Um, I prefer microphones, but if I'm playing a loud place, I tend to want them, uh, the K&K twin pickup and a clip-on mic. Uh, so, so all of those, those three mandolins will all work that way. How do you blunt uh, the signal? Uh, with a, um, Grace Felix. That's that's too, you know, and in, in the in the year 2020, that seems to be <laughs> that seems to be as good as we've gotten so far. Uh, you know, you know that works pretty good. Um, if I'm playing with percussion or on a bigger stage or anything, I do like the sound of in-ear monitors. If if everybody in the band that I'm playing with is used to that, I much prefer that to wedges. Um, but nowadays I find myself like, like playing with Tim Connell, we're doing house concerts and it's completely acoustic. There's no, no miking on anything. And I, I really like that too. So, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're going to go the total acoustic sounding route, that's the way to do it. If you can, if you can get those gigs, that's perfect. But... Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you, yeah. As soon as you start, you know, people go, Oh, I got this great Neumann KM84 and I'm using it in a brew pub. And it's like, well, great. <laughs> Yeah. But, the cash re- but the cash register sounds great coming through the PA. You know? <laughs> you know, oh, it's going to so pick funny. up. It's going to pick up the door opening fifty feet away from you. Yeah, you know? that's not, not going to work. No, no, it's it's impossible, man. In like some yeah, of those situations. So, yeah. So if you, if I am playing a, you know, if people are talking, um, then yeah, I like to pick up the mic and the in ears and, you know, and play. Um, ideally, if people are not talking, then you can go acoustic or gather around one microphone or that kind of stuff is all really fun. And that's what I do. So when I play my, my favorite electrics now, to get back to your question, I guess, um, are cheap. Uh, well, two, or th- two out of three are cheap. I've got a uh, Eastwood Telecaster, te- whatever it's called, Mandocaster. It's like a little black telly with two single coil pickups. Oh, cool. Uh, it was like a $200 instrument that I had, you know, new frets and new electronics put in, new pots anyways. That plays and sounds great. I recently bought a Ryza four-string, I think they call it a electric tenor uke. It's 16 or 17 inches, four strings. It's a Telecaster, but it's currently strung CGDA, and it's my favorite new instrument to play in the world. It's it's amazing. There's a couple of YouTube videos of me playing it, and it's 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 just so much fun. It it really sounds like a telly. It squawks. It does all the stuff that like a Telecaster does, but it's but it's 16 inch scale, so you can still play mandolin fingering barely, <laughs> barely. Yeah, the 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 fifth fret is about as far as I can get with my third finger. It's like can't go any bigger scale than this, so I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so I you know. But I like that. I like taking the mandolin stuff and putting it in, you know, heck, I was in a Frank Zappa cover band for a while. Holy cow. (laughs) Yeah, it's just fun to play a variety of music, and the regular acoustic mandolin doesn't always get you there. Yeah, for sure. So we got two questions left here in this. 
And um, the first one is is always the most popular find, and that is if you had 10 minutes today just to play, although now (laughs) most people have all day to play, um, but in a normal world situation, if you only had 10 minutes a day to play your mandolin, what would you work on to make yourself a better player? 10 minutes is not very much time, but but you could do it in 10 minute increments and maybe alternate them. I think, I think there's two things going on um, in the learning process that I really focus on with my students. And whether we're talking about 10 minutes or we're talking about an hour lesson, I think a certain percentage, you could say half or you can adjust the percentage. A certain percentage should be spent on technique if you're practicing. So if you want to learn your scales, you should practice your scales and come up with some cool exercises so that you know your scales. If you're wanting to improvise and you realize, geez, I don't really know the notes in these chords, well, then you should spend some of your time on the technique of learning where these chord tones are and that kind of thing. The other part of your practice should be the total opposite of that. You should just play have fun so if you you know so if you had 10 minutes every other day maybe one day monday you practice your scales for 10 minutes tuesday you just pick up your mandolin and you just play fiddle tunes you go man i got 10 minutes i can play the red-haired boy and soldier's joy and you know and just play yeah because if you're not if you're not playing and having fun then it's a drag (laughs) yeah exactly you know, I tell students, don't, you know, don't set up your special room with your special chair, with your special beverage and your special oak music stand. No, 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 no. <clears throat> Leave your mandolin laying around the house. That's what I tell them. You know, get a stand. I have a stand in my living room. You know, there has to be a mandolin near me at any moment. I mean, your 10 minutes might happen when you're boiling water to make tea in the morning. Right. What do you, you know, you put the teapot on, what are you going to do? You sit there and watch it? (laughs) Well, if you have, if your mandolin's right there, you can just sit and noodle around for 10 minutes while the water's boiling. You know, I think the real answer to your question is we all have more than 10 minutes a day. We just don't, don't make it something so rigorous and make it available. Just make it available. Yeah. And I always find, too, that 10 minutes disappears. You, you could be playing 30 minutes then, and suddenly you've just done three times as much as you expected to do. Yeah. And then the last question of this podcast, beer. Do you have a favorite beer that you like to drink when playing your mandolin? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug a local place. Yeah, um, yeah, man. Uh, one of the first microbreweries in Michigan was a place called Shorts Brewery. And uh, they're still around. And there's, I think they import beer to different states now. I think you can buy their beer in a variety of places. But I think, I think the regular first Shorts beer, the Bel Air Brown, is still one of my favorites of all time. I love brown beers, man. Brown ale, oh, my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, not a, um, I'm not a big IPA ultimately hoppy kind of beer fan i i'm not really i don't understand that recent trend i don't i don't get it um i prefer beers that have more malty 
body to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do German style beers. Heck, I'm I could still drink old old school canned American beer. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I had a twelve pack of hams in the refrigerator last month. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> All right, Don, so I appreciate you being on the podcast, man, taking the time. Thank you so much. You're, you're an inspiration. Um, I've been a fan for years, and it's been great. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Daniel. Yeah, this is a great thing that you do, and I'm honored to be on the uh, awesome list of mandolin players that have uh, contributed to mandolins and beer. Thank you. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care of yourself. And here... The end of the podcast, as promised at the beginning, is an unmixed, unreleased track from an album coming out from Don Julian and Tim Connell here sometime at the end of 2020. It's Mr. Natural Live. Cheers, everybody. Thank you.